welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now, podcasting from the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center in Chicagoland, here are your hosts, Ed Stetzer and Daniel Yang. Welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping Christian leaders navigate and lead through the cultural issues of our day. My name's Daniel Yang, the director of the Church Multiplication Institute. We're excited to have with us today Trevin Wax. Trevin is Vice President of Research and Resource Development at the North American Mission Board and a visiting professor of theology at Cedarville University, as well as having taught theology courses at Wheaton College. He served as general editor of the Gospel Project and is a regular columnist at the Gospel Coalition. Trevin's the author of several books. His latest book is The Thrill of Orthodoxy, Rediscovering the Adventure of Christian Faith. But before we hear from Trevin, let's go to Ed Stetzer, editor-in-chief of Outreach Magazine and the executive director of the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center. I love the place where it says, as well as having taught theology classes at Wheaton College. I, I don't I don't remember that. I remember him teaching in my program, but it appears now we're in the category of as well as having taught. And also by the time this comes out, having uh, come and taught a little bit. Well, we won't go into all that. We won't go into that. We won't go into that because you clearly have uh, taught for us and we like you generally, usually somewhat. And um, we're having you on the program. So Trev and I go back a long time. So we started together the Gospel Project which is a curriculum that like uh, 1.7 million people have in their hand every week. We wanted to put the cookies a little higher on the shelf theologically um, and challenge people to be a less, even the children's curriculum be less moralistic, more focused on theology. Neither of us are in uh, in the same uh, spot we were before when we did that, but I knew of his desire to see orthodox theology Little O Orthodox theology. And we will say little O versus big O. Big O is Orthodox. My my parents are Eastern Orthodox converts. They're big O Orthodox. Little O Orthodox is the idea. Well, let's let's have Trevin kind of explain it. We're going to talk some about his book. It's called The Thrill of Orthodoxy, Rediscovering the Adventure of Christian Faith. Trevin, it seems to me that orthodoxy is questioned, disputed, walked away from, and important. Let's talk some about why you wrote about orthodoxy. Well, I think, I mean, the church rises and falls with what the church confesses about Jesus. So at the end of the day, I mean, if the church is all about Jesus, then what we believe about him, what we want other people to believe about him, our mission in making his name and fame known, uh, all of that matters. So when we talk about orthodoxy, at the end of the day, I mean, you could, you can think it's just a, a dry and dense list of doctrines, or you can actually see it as uh, as a way of us talking about the one whose name we confess. We, we, we bear his name. If we're Christians, truly Christians, then uh, what it means for us to answer Jesus's question that he posed to the disciples, who do you say that I am? I mean, that's really, that's what Christian theology is all about. So orthodoxy really matters if we're all about God, if we're all about uh, his mission, if we want to see his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so uh, I, that's why it's important. And it's important in every generation. It doesn't get old. It, some of the doctrines may be old, but the the relevance of them uh, doesn't, doesn't go away. Okay, you start your book with the church faces her biggest challenge, not when new errors start to win, but when old truths no longer wow. Uh, which is an interesting phrase. I would say that there's lots of challenges when new errors are winning. We're in a place, we're in a real, I mean, the State of Theology Report just came out. We started that when I was at Lifeway Research with partnership with Ligonier. Man, orthodoxy is not looking so great about the nature of who Christ is, the nature of who God is, who the Holy Spirit is. I mean, I can give 15 examples. Uh, those errors, I don't know if they're new, but your approach here is more focusing on the old truths that catch our attention 
than the new errors that are a problem in the church. Why is that? Well, because I think there's two ways of going about this. You can you can focus on all of the the new errors that start popping up, and you can be like whack-a-mole and just trying to like you know just let's go after every theological error that we see out there. You know, kind of like that that cartoon of the 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 man who won't go to bed. He's on the internet. He's like, there's someone wrong on the internet. I mean, you could really, if you're not careful, you'll take this approach to theology where you're basically just looking for errors all over the place. And what I want to say with this book is, yeah, we've got to take error very seriously, but the before errors really gain in popularity, generally it's because the old truths are no longer at the forefront of the church's minds. So we we get, we get bored with doctrine. We get bored with some of those foundational beliefs, sometimes over-familiar. And over time, generation after generation, unless there's that renewal of, uh, of excitement and energy around the, the core commitments of the Christian faith, those fundamental doctrines that matter, that have st- stood the test of time, that are still relevant— uh, the, the new errors they get that's where they get the foothold so it's not that i'm saying the new errors are 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 not dangerous or that they're not a challenge they are but the bigger challenge isn't the new errors coming it's the it's what has to happen before those new errors gain the foothold and that generally happens when people have lost sight of the the relevance and the power of christianity and the essentials hmm. Uh, you know, Trevin, um, obviously we're not talking about, you know, uh, the Orthodox Church when we say orthodoxy, um, but also, you know, th- there's a saying, one man's heresy is another man's orthodoxy. So uh, how would you define orthodoxy? Yeah. So in this book, I am talking about orthodoxy as those beliefs of Christians that have been, uh, as the old saying goes, they've been held always by everyone uh, everywhere. Like the 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 essential, like the classic Christian tradition. Now, that's not to say that there aren't a lot of uh, uh, differences between people who would who would claim the mantle of orthodoxy. But here we're talking about Nicene, the Nicene uh, uh, Creed, the 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 essentials of the Christian faith. That for the most part, across the generations, all Christians come around and say this is the Trinitarian confession that is the bedrock of our faith. Uh, now there is a, such a thing as like little old orthodox, little o orthodoxy that would uh, matter for different uh, confessions of faith. So confessions tend to be uh, more specific, more detailed than creeds are, and you do have different confessions that are out there in different wings of the church. So you know there's differences between Reformed Christians, for example, and Wesleyan Christians, or differences, uh, and so you could say that you know that there could be like a little h heresy. For uh, 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 if you know that you're not orthodox in the reformed sense, or you're not orthodox in the Wesleyan sense, if you deny this doctrine, or you have a different view of doctrine. But here I'm talking about the capital H heresies, the, the heresies that all of the church recognizes. All wings say this is uh, um, this is away from the gospel. This is actually damnable doctrine. That damnable is, doctrine. Uh, That's the first time the words damnable doctrine have been uttered. On the Stetzer Church. I like it. I like uttering the damnable doctrines. Uh, okay, so um, you mentioned the Nicene Creed, and then you mentioned the creeds versus, as versus confessions that would come later. So we recognize that Pentecostals are going to see the uh, error in some non-Pentecostals from their perspective and people who practice infant baptism versus – okay, so those are all within the realm of historic Nicene orthodoxy. Um, So is it all just the creeds? Is it the creeds that define uh, what's orthodox? If so, I should add that the state of theology says that the majority of evangelicals are actual big H heretics, 
but that's another because again you're saying the holy spirit's a force not a person majority of evangelicals and more but again you know pop theology always has theological problems but my question for you is is orthodoxy contained in the creeds from your view uh, I would say that the creeds actually explain and describe what the Bible teaches about okay. who Jesus is, Father, okay. Son, or and what who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and what He's done to save us. So I, I don't think the authority resides in the creeds. I think the creeds are authoritative in as much as they are summaries and distillations of what the Bible teaches. So, so like a good Protestant, I'm going back to the scriptures alone as our final authority. Creeds can be fallible, but the, the church has recognized that in these short summary statements, the, this, this is a very good distillation uh, of what the, the, the Bible teaches. Okay. So, so the creeds, for example, don't address issues of sexuality at all. Uh, these are an issue in our day that have become a defining issue in some of the conversation. We're recording this, just a, you know, a well-known, uh, somewhat well-known pastor uh, has, you know, declared himself welcoming and affirming. You've talked about that in and around issues in the past. Does that rise to the level of orthodoxy? Because I know some believers would say, um, uh, I affirm, you know, all the creeds and I'm welcoming affirming when it comes to sexuality. Where does that fit into categorically? Yeah, no, that's a great question, and it's one I think that a lot of people are wrestling with right now. Uh, there, there are really two different ways to look at the creeds. You can take a minimalist approach or a maximalist approach. The minimalist approach says just these bare affirmations of faith, this is what constitutes orthodoxy. The maximalist approach is really the way that that the church fathers and theologians throughout the centuries have actually looked at it, where they say there's all these implications that flow from the creeds. So, for example, if we are, uh, when we confess our belief in God, the creator of heaven and earth, you know, that we believe in one God, the Almighty, our Father, creator of heaven and earth, we're actually, there are implications that flow from what it means to uh, to be part of God's created order, the goodness of creation, the goodness of male and female fits in there and whatnot. Um, and so I, it's it's a little distressing to see people, I think right now, there, it, I don't think this will last long, but there is there are a number of people who say, I believe the creeds, I just differ from the church for the past 2000 years on our understanding of the human body and, and the theology of the body and sexuality. Whereas um, that's, that's like, it's to me, it's like trying to take shelter under the creeds to get out from under the authority of scripture, which is a really strange approach. What I, what I, uh, where I would put the sexuality conversation is I would say um, a, a friend of mine, Matthew Lee Anderson has called it an architectural doctrine saying it's a load bearing wall in the house of orthodoxy in the Christian faith. Um, uh, Michael McClyman says that uh, universalism, which is another sort of on the fringe understanding of, of, uh, of uh, the final state of, of human beings, that that is a, um, a, a game-ending chess move. And you, don't, you might not recognize it at the moment that when you take that step, that you're actually forfeiting the game, or you're actually about to, to go into checkmate, or uh, it's the same with the load-bearing wall. You may think, well, we can remove this wall or change this smaller wall or alter this wall, and the structure can stay standing. But over time, it will be very obvious that the the rest of the, uh, of the structure of orthodoxy cannot hold. So this is why, for example, and those who uh, um, who deny the traditional understanding of sexuality, over time, you see it almost inevitably. I mean, we could go down the list of, of people who have made that jump, uh, individuals who have made that jump, eventually are are also uh, denying all sorts of other doctrines that are are essential to the creeds and have been affirmed by Christians. So it kind of hangs together. You know, the Bible uh, 
uh, opens with marriage and ends with marriage, and that there's this uh, uh, a radical distortion of the gospel that happens when you when you fudge on that. And over time, the implications, like removing that load bearing wall, the implications uh, uh, become known. Fascinating. Okay, so um, the Episcopal Church. You know, I came to Christ in the Charismatic movement of the Episcopal Church, and uh, actually, my um, and the the pastor, uh, the priest of the church is now the retiring bishop of the Diocese of Central Florida, the church that discipled me. Um, and he stayed, they stayed in the Episcopal Church. Uh, a lot of Episcopal churches left into what has now become the Anglican Church in North America or other groups. That, and they're largely called by people inside the Episcopal Church the schismatics, those people who, there's a schism. You actually see this. We recently had a, uh, some, a meeting with the Archbishop of Canterbury in the UK. And people said, well, we don't want the schismatics. And the schismatics were to the people in the Episcopal Church, the people who have left the Episcopal Church in what they would say is a uh, commitment to orthodoxy, in a pursuit of orthodoxy. You actually have been the only person, I've seen other people take it up from you. You've actually made the case that there are schismatics, but it's not the people who've left to remain orthodox. So would you mind making that, again, it's not front and central to your book, but I do think it's an important part of what it means to depart orthodoxy and who's departing. Explain a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I mean, actually, I I go back to using schismatic in this in in, in talking about those who have departed from the tradition of the church on this. Right, because, I, say, I should have said I don't think I said schism. So a schismatic is someone who participates in a schism or a split. That's right. But go ahead. I, yeah, I would I would say the the revisionists are the schismatics, and the reason why I mean to go back to N.T. Wright when he did um, he did a report on the Windsor report back uh, when the Anglican Communion was talking about this. I think it's probably been. 15 years ago now or so, but um, he was the one who actually was, was calling the Episcopals, the schismatics, those who were, who were going against the, 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 the church at the time. And, uh, and he's in, he, as far as other theologians are concerned, that was Wolfgang, uh, uh, is it Wolfgang or Wolfhart Pannenberg's uh, view? Yeah, basically was saying, um, uh, you know, famous German theologian did a lot of work on the resurrection and whatnot, um, but, but said on this particular issue, of of sexuality and marriage, those who depart from the tradition must know they are choosing schism. So so I'm taking some of these you know the, these theologians who are looking out over the, the the landscape of things and and I'm 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 seeing uh, and and I think you see this happening with the um, uh, with the Anglican Communion that the question is where what what is precipitating the schism or who are actually breaking apart from the from the tradition and i think the anglican church the anglican communion themselves um it, what's interesting is they they censured the episcopal wing of the the church a few years ago um i what more comes from that as far as like actual disciplinary actions i think remains to be seen there's a lot of uh, just I was just watching the Lambeth conference and and some of the conversations coming out of that and what that means for the future of Anglicanism globally uh, in Australia and other Western churches. But but basically, my point is when you depart from the the unchanging witness of the church for two thousand years and the consensus of the global church around the world, which there is no question the global position of the church on this. This is not up for debate in most par parts of the world except for in generally a shrinking subset of predominantly uh, uh, white churches in the West. I mean, just to be frank, that's really where you see this. It's a sliver of a church, but th there's a lot of wealth. There's a lot of influence and power in, in, in the churches where 
the revisionist view has taken hold. And so there's a lot of back and forth about this in different denominations. And so, uh, you know, it, it remains to be seen what the outcome will be, but I'm, I'm confident based on the, the, the past of the church and the, the, the global consensus of the church, even now, that if we were to fast forward a hundred years ago, uh, some of these debates would be put in a very different perspective. Um, those who who take the, the the revisionist view of this believe that 100 years from now, virtually everyone's going to agree with them that they're on the vanguard on the fr- on the front lines of this. Um, I I think I think they're mistaken on that. I think that it's similar to those who 100 years ago thought that you know coming up with different interpretations and explanations of the miracles or the supernatural. Because, you know, we live in a scientific and a technological age. We can't, people, we can't expect people to believe in things like the virgin birth and embarrassing aspects of Christian doctrine 100 years ago. Um, I think, I think um, that move was wrong 100 years ago. And I think the, the move now away from the, the, the Christian position on morality would, would also be yeah. wrong. And 100 years from now, things will look different. You know, I'm asking too many questions. I'm going to give you a chance to do so. I just want to, because I think this becomes a, a, a question for a lot of people. Okay, so we're saying the creeds, and we're not just saying a creed, but there's a series of creeds, and there's a you know, series of what we call ecumenical councils uh, and more, that that's believed everywhere, by everyone, always, um, who are considered orthodox. We recognize that there might be other streams that were not within those ecumenical creeds. Um, so, so that's the case. And we would see that rise to the level of orthodoxy, a little low orthodoxy, but but again, believed everywhere, everywhere by everyone. But it's like the creeds and sexuality is, that seems for a lot of people. Now, I just should say that, I mean, I agree with you, so I'm not disagreeing with you, but I think I need to ask the question, why elevate that? Why can't that be? We've actually had this conversation, you and I have live on, uh, I think it was at the Washington Post. Um why elevate that? Can't that be an agree to disagree thing like uh, like baptism is or the baptism of the Holy Spirit for that matter or the you know the place of the sacraments versus the ordinances? Why is that to the level of orthodoxy and not an agree to disagree? Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a great question. And of course, agree to disagree may the, the, those issues do happen with you know different traditions and denominations. I, I mean, you know, I'm a I'm a Baptist, and so I have a, a particular view of baptism, and would would not want to agree to disagree on baptism. I just know that in the 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 big you know the if the the Christianity is a is a tree and there are these different branches, I just realize the branch that I'm part of and and wanting to uh, um, uh, to be as faithful as I can within that within that context. Um, yeah, the, the, the reason why I think sexuality, I don't think the question really is about sexuality. I think the question is about anthropology and anthropology is certainly level is certainly lifted to the level of orthodoxy. So our view of human nature, our view of humanity, our view of what it means to be made in the image of God, male and female, uh, these are implications that flow from our belief in God, the the creator of all things and uh, all things visible and invisible and what it means for us to be embodied creatures. So um, I, I don't, I don't think that we're, it's necessarily, a, I think the presenting issue is, is a debate over sexuality, but that's not the foundational issue. The foundational issue is the view of anthropology that's underneath that. And, and there is a cosmological um, uh, shift that takes place uh, in, in worldview between um, uh, revisionists and traditionalists when it comes to uh, to sexuality. This is why even a historian who who, who doesn't affirm Christianity's uh, sexual ethic, as far as I know, like uh, Kyle Harper, for example, and talking about the early church's beliefs on sexuality, I mean, says it's a highly distinctive 
sexual gospel is actually, these are the kinds of phrases that he uses in showing that this first sexual revolution happened 2000 years ago, and that uh, it was one of Christianity's markers. Um, and I think I think there are lots of things that we would say were very distinctive about Christianity and have been distinctive uh, throughout the, the the centuries. Doesn't mean that Christians have always gotten it right or wrong, but there is a a, a, a serious cosmological shift in the foundational understanding of anthropology that happens on this issue. And that's why it gets raised. So I don't know that I would say, oh, sexuality is what gets raised to the level of orthodoxy. I would say anthropology is raised to that level and sexuality is a corollary of that. Mm, yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a huge common thread there. Uh, Trevin, I want to give you like a very specific example, because I think a lot of pastors, the way that they feel it is typically in this way. So you're a local church pastor, you attend a denominational meeting, there's a vote on the floor about potentially a portion of the statement of faith. Um, and so let's say, for instance, uh, uh, there's a motion on the floor to, to change from a pre-mill position to 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 not having a position about which would be which would be bad, but since I'm pre-mill, well, just there you to go. Put that out okay, there. okay. So, but, I'm, so, but I'm, I'm tracking with you. I'm at this meeting. I'm yep, feeling this. You're at the meeting. Evangelical Free Church. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> and others. <laughs> and others. others yeah, yep. yeah, okay. Um, and uh, or it could be women in ministry, right? So there's a lot of different uh, there's a lot of different issues right now that are are on the floor of denominational meetings. And so the language of liberal drift oftentimes comes in, or some kind of drift. It might not be liberal. Um, and so the local church pastor who's at this meeting, and they're trying to discern for themselves what this means for themselves, their church, and then all of a sudden somebody's thrown in, potentially our denomination is drifting you know, one way or the other. Can you help them to sort through like what really is a drift? Um so that the level of concern that they have can can meet the urgency of what they're actually hearing, you know, in those debates. Does that does that make sense at all? Yeah, yeah. I think you know, I think drift is real, and I think it's something that we've got to be aware of. I mean, I I use the illustration in the book. If you've ever been out in the ocean and you're, you know, you're, you know, either snorkeling or looking for fish or swimming out in the waves or something, it, when you when you look back at shore and you see everything moved. And then you realize, oh, it didn't move. I moved, and you didn't even know that the the current was was catching you. If you're not actively opposing drift at some level, you're likely to be drifting. So I don't think that the, I think it's it's wrong for people to overblow the fear of that and to live in fear of constant drifting. I think we've got to have more confidence that God is going to keep us in the faith and that we are kept by Jesus Christ, as Jude talks about. So I, I don't think we live a fear-based, uh, 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 we don't need to have a spiritual life that's afraid of drift in that sense, but we do, we should resist drift. Um, I, I think it's important for us though, to put particular drift in, in, um, in context. So if, if we are likely to drift away from what we would say are the essentials of the faith, the, the, the orthodox beliefs that, that all Christians say, this is what it means for us to confess the name of Jesus Christ as Lord. That's a different level of danger and drift. Then, for example, um, moving towards something that uh, has been historically something that's agreed to disagree. And sometimes we get these things confused because denominations, and this is, you know, we had mentioned the evangelical free church for a while. Uh, it was one of the distinctives of the evangelical free church that you would be pre-mill. And I think the, as well think it the should reason, be. What, what did you say? <laughs> as well, it should be, but go ahead. Yeah, well, I mean, that was the, that was the, the view. <laughs> Are and, you pre-mill? Just, so just so we're clear, just so we're clear. Are you pre-mill? 
I, I, uh, I am historic pre-mill. That's a no. Four days That's a, week. a no. Okay. Four days That's a week. A no. Three days a week. I may be on mill. It just depends. You're, so you're drifting, but let's keep going. You keep going. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, but you know, it's one of those issues where the, the pre-mill, I think one of the reasons that denominations took a really hard line stance on, on something that the church historically has not um, is because that was actually, it was a bundle issue. Um, and sometimes this happens in, in, in denominational life. You see this happen. Um, there will be an issue that's sort of the presenting issue. And if you, if you actually affirm this position, it means you actually are in line with all sorts of other, other beliefs that are closer to what we would say would be the heart of orthodoxy. And so what, what happens is over time, those things begin to get unbundled a little bit. And so there was a time when the pre-mill requirement basically assured that there would be no one that was denying the authority and inspiration of God's word, because it was a bun- it was a, it was a doctrine that was bundled with a bunch of other things. Um, over time, and just in conversation with other Christians and other parts of the world, again, the global church, the church throughout history, suddenly you recognize that, you know, some of the people whose shoulders you're standing on don't actually affirm the position that you, Ed, affirm on the pre-mill side of things, you know, that kind of thing happens and you realize, okay, I may still hold this position, but should I make this position be uh, um, uh, one of the essentials for our denominational identity? And that's where you begin to have that question. And so, yes, someone could say that you've drifted into more of a doctrinal indifference by, by relaxing that standard, or you could say, no, we're actually just firming up what are the essentials uh, um, on this. But um, I think what we have to be really careful is raising political disagreements, prudential disagreements of wisdom of how we live in the public square to levels of orthodoxy. And most of the time when I see people complaining about warning about drift today, it's not because doctrinally they've actually denied one of the core essentials of the faith or even downplayed or even moved in that direction, but it's because of differences of opinion on uh, on matters of wisdom where Christians are are going to hash things out and rest. It's because of the the sort of the tribal categories that have come over from the world have been, you know, brought into denominational life. That's when suddenly it's you must be drifting because you know you no longer believe in capital punishment. Therefore, you must be a liberal. You know, whereas there are a lot of Christians out throughout the world who are theologically conservative who might agree or disagree with that position. You know, there it, it's the sort of raising of lesser things to essential things. And, and people think they're defending the faith when they do that. They're actually diluting the importance and the essentials of orthodoxy. And they're putting it all in the same basket so that when someone later questions that, that decision, or they question one of those non-essentials, they're not able to distinguish between essentials and non-essentials. And then essential Christian doctrines wind up on the table for revision or reflection right. as well. Okay, and so, that's the problem. So there is intra-denominational drift. I mean, it's drift all over. You know, again, I'm, I'm an academia. An important book is The Dying of the Light, The Disengagement of Colleges and Universities from Their Christian Churches. I mean, it's like it's like a train track that keeps going this way if you don't pull back in a different direction. Wheaton College was founded in the same movement that that is Oberlin College was founded in and by. And Wheaton College and Oberlin are very different places, largely because of people of the doctrinal statement and people saying, no, we're not going to head that direction. Okay. So, but there's, I mean, your question got to some intra, inside, intra-denominational drift. So George Wood, he's with the Lord now, but George Wood a few years ago stood up before the Assemblies of God with some research we had done at Lifeway Research and said, listen, only 90% of you affirm that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is subsequent from conversion with initial physical evidence of speaking in tongues. And that 10% was drift away 
from historic Pentecostalism. Now, for me, I don't believe that. So for me, I don't see that as a theological watershed moment. But if you're Pentecostal or if you're Presbyterian, you're drifting from Reformed theology or whatever it may be, you know, complementarian and egalitarian, moving on some of those issues, that's intra-denominational. But someone can leave Pentecostalism and still be Orthodox. Someone can leave, can change their views on, on uh, you know, egalitarian versus complementarian and still be within uh, the broad category of Orthodoxy. Someone can be a Wesleyan and, or, or Presbyterian and still be there. The, the challenge is, is how do you know where those things are? So again, we're coming back to the book. The book is The Thrill of Orthodoxy, Rediscovering the Adventure of the Christian Faith. So how do I know, and I know we're coming back to it, how do I know what fits into that category so I can do what Jude says in verse 3, contend earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints? Yeah, I think I think it's important for for you for for us to recognize because of church through church history and the global church what are those elements that are non-negotiable for any denomination any church that's claiming the name of Christ. Those are the that's the defending the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Um, there is something to be said though for denominational integrity. So I. Ed, I would say in your example of the, you know, the Assemblies of God and the concern that there might be some drift away from a, a from a distinctive, a Pentecostal distinctive, yeah. that even if you don't agree with, would recognize that that's been a historic part of Pentecostal identity. Um, I, I think that's a legitimate conversation to have. Yeah. The way I would look at it would be like, um, we need to look at ourselves as, perhaps we could look at our denominations like a neighborhood and we're all in different homes. And there's beautiful things about visiting other people's homes. You know, you may learn something, you may learn something from this house, or you may glean something from this other house. You may have a block party where you all get together and do a, a Billy Graham evangelistic event, you know, or something like that, where you all come together for something. But uh, there's something to be said about the the denominational integrity or or the, uh, the uh, of having one's home. And I there's a couple of mistakes you can make about uh, denominational identity. One is seeing it as a fortress where basically you never, it's like a bunker and man, you put the wall there. It's not a white picket fence. It's like a, you know, a, a cement wall around the house and keep everyone else out, or we're going to be tainted, that kind of a thing. I think that's very unhealthy. That generally leads, generally leads in a bad direction. Uh, cults eventually wind up there. Um, different sects within uh, um, that leave eventually in trying to preserve your denominational identity to that extent, you wind up of um, uh, sacrificing your connection to the to, to the global church. So I think that's a problem. But the other problem would be to say, you know, it really doesn't matter. The the denominational entire, the walls of this house, the ceiling of this house, the roof, the, the structure of this house doesn't really matter. You can just change wh whatever you want. Well, at some point, it might be better if there's someone who has a different uh, view. Let's say you've visited another home or something and you become convinced that some house is closer to you know what the the Bible teaches than 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 something else. There, it may be time to instead of trying to change your house, it may just be time to move in with a house in in the neighborhood. You know, like there's there's nothing. Don't think there's nothing there's nothing wrong with uh, um, uh, inhabiting a house where the convictions are like that. So um, I mm. think I think though you have to be careful uh, when you're talking about your specific denominational home versus you're talking about the neighborhood. And I, a lot of times in the, it just gets conflated for people and people's minds. They, they're unable to see what are those things that might damage the structure of this beautiful home that, that we've inherited, that has been passed down to us. It's, you know, got denominational distinctives. Um, what, you know, what, what might damage the, the home? Um, there, if you conflate 
what might damage the home with what would actually set fire to the whole neighborhood. That's that's where you run into to, to problems, and you're you're not able to distinguish between denominational distinctives and orthodoxy in the in the broad sense. You know, Trevin, this week uh, probably the most pressing thing that pastors and church leaders are going to be facing is uh, the very thing that you talked about is helping church members become. Um, wild again by these basic essentials. So, uh, as we as we getting ready to conclude here, uh, can you help uh, pastors and church leaders think through how, how do they avoid? Uh, let's say, for instance, they want to express how beautiful the triune God is, but they don't want to just go into like wonky uh, illustrations. You know, the the Trinity is like an egg. No, uh, but it's, it's like it's water, steam. Exactly. Ice. Make it my point. Thank That's you. That's modalism, Patrick. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Another story for another day. Uh, or giving a dry seminarian lecture on, you know, um, uh, on the Trinity. So how do you, as a local church pastor, help to wow church members again around the core essentials of the Christian faith? Yeah, I think I think at the end of the day, what we're going for, and I mean, Ed knows we talked about this a lot when we talked about the Gospel Project, because the one thing we did not want to have happen with that curriculum, and I think this would be true of the books and the things that Ed and I and others have written uh, that feel similarly, is that we care about theology, we care about doctrine, we care about dogma deeply, but its connection to the Christian life is what matters, because at the end of the day, we want people to encounter God. We want them to actually have an experience with God. So the reason that doctrine matters, and I think this is important for church leaders to recognize, everything in our society is going to prime you for only wanting to focus on those things that seem immediately practical and relevant. Um, The hard job of the pastor is to go deeper into the pools of orthodoxy, but then to emerge from that showing the church that a lot of these foundational doctrines are practical and relevant in ways that they didn't realize. So it's not that I, and this is sometimes what happens is you've got your, your sort of pragmatic, what works people, let's just talk about application. And you've got your theological eggheads who want to do the seminary lecture on the Trinity. Right. And I want to say, no, neither one of those is ultimately satisfying. Uh, the, the, the pragmatic thing doesn't go far enough into the depths of the Christian tradition and the seminary lecture doesn't actually connect it to life and actually show why this is beautiful and how it gives us a better glimpse of who God is. So you've got to be able to do something that brings those two together. And that's really, that's going to be the challenge for us as church leaders is to, to be able to explain and articulate and teach well Christian doctrine, but in a way that captivates the imagination and draws the heart closer to God. Because at the end of the day, it's all about relationship. It's all about uh, knowing him. Uh, loving him, serving him more. Uh, uh, You can't divorce deeds and creeds. You just can't. To try to divorce deeds and creeds is a disaster, no matter which direction you fall. In this book, I may be pulling us back toward, hey, the the creeds really matter, but that's because I care about the deeds that come from those beliefs. And so I think that's our task as, as church leaders. When we see these surveys, we see these surveys and we may be disappointed uh, at some of the beliefs that are out there, but we should just take that as, hey, this is a task in our generation. Uh, we're not just going to go in guns a-blazing trying to fix all of this with just a doctrinal seminar. We need to help people understand why these doctrines really matter, who Jesus is, what he has done for us, why we want to connect with him and uh, uh, and have an experience of him that will transform our lives and set us out on his mission. You've been listening to Trevin Wax. Be sure to check out his latest book, The Thrill of Orthodoxy, Rediscovering the Adventure of Christian Faith. 
Thanks again for listening to the Stetzer Church Leaders podcast. You can find more interviews as well as other great content for ministry leaders at churchleaders.com slash podcast. And if again, if you found this conversation helpful today, we'd love for you to take a few moments, leave us a review that'll help other ministry leaders find and benefit from our content. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in the next episode. You've been listening to the Stetzer Church Leaders podcast. For more great interviews, as well as articles, videos, and free resources, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.